Welcome back to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be Dr. Kevin Majors, a psychiatrist practicing in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who teaches at the Harvard Medical School, and he is an expert on anxiety, which is incredibly common in our society. Yeah, so what a blessing to have him with us today. And before we get to the interview, we wanted to kind of set the stage with some background information about anxiety. Don't be nervous. We'll walk you through it. Huh, what uh, we're uh, really, not to worry. <laughs> yeah, probably more puns this, this show than others. <laughs> not to make light of it, but you, if you don't laugh, you cry. Yes. Um, general anxiety disorder is kind of the catch-all term that we use to describe anxiety as a problem. It's, it's not the, the stress that people get from time to time here or there that would not impact the way you live your life, but this is a profound medical condition that greatly impacts how you live your life. And it's, it's characterized by excessive and persistent worrying. It's hard to control, and there are both psychological but also physical symptoms of anxiety. And, and in fact, it can be so bad that it interferes with what we call activities of daily living. You can't even live your ni- life normally because the anxiety is always with you, like a part of you. And those people who have never had it, they just can't relate. You know, oftentimes the attitude is, come on, just buck up, you know, be a man or be a woman or, or whatever. And if you've never experienced it, it's really, I think, hard to understand. I, I think it, it very much is. That was one of the things that struck me getting into practice and really caring for people with anxiety. I'm struck not only by how debilitating it is, it, it's something that you wouldn't recognize if you compare it to just normal worrying about something that most of us suffer from occasionally. This is something totally different, and it does change people's lives uh, for the worst. And a lot of times I find that patients are not really aware that it's going on until it's kind of pointed out. And, and there are different types of anxiety. You know, the, the broadest di- diagnosis is the one Andrew stated, the generalized anxiety disorder. There are more specific ones focused on a narrower slice of life than just all of life. And, and Dr. Majors is going to help us to understand that better. But uh, between anxiety and depression, you've got by far the two most common mental health disorders in the world. Right. And there's, there's a lot of overlap between the two. Uh, we pulled some epidemiological numbers for our listeners, and uh, I was interested to find out that in the United States, there's a lifetime prevalence at some point in your life having generalized anxiety disorder of somewhere between about 5 and 12 percent of all people. So that's really quite a high number. The, the thing that, that didn't surprise me, I thought it might be higher. The thing that surprised me was that that number is about half in Europe. And I don't know why that is. So does this mean that our patients with anxiety should move to Europe? Well, I I don't know. (laughs) That would be a study in and of itself. But it means that either you or someone you you care about probably has symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder. It's actually the most common mental disorder in primary care that that we do see in family medicine and, and even more so in psychiatry with our guest today. So do you see patients presenting to your office with this as a reason for coming in or is it an add-on or is it something you find but that they didn't mention? I would say that the most common thing is it's something that they don't identify that I bring up. Ah. And it actually makes it quite challenging because there is an unfair social stigma about psychological disorders oh, yes. uh, that people, as you were kind of alluding to, some of the uh, you know euphemisms people will, will kind of bring up uh, to either blow it off or try and encourage you. I, I find them counterproductive because these people, a lot of them don't even realize that it's anxiety. Uh, I see frequently people coming in with physical symptoms, and we, we assume that it's a physical problem. My arm tingles. I'm having chest pain. I cannot sleep, you know, and we work it up like one of the more traditional organic biological illnesses. And when we get to the end of all the tests and everything keeps looking normal, but the problem's still there, then we have to say to ourselves, could this be something called somatization, a a physical complaint that's brought on by psychological distress? And I see that super commonly. You have some people come in complaining of worrying, but I'd say those people are are much fewer than the people I see that present with a physical ailment. Is it because they've been 
worrying or anxious so much of their life, they just think that's their normal baseline? You know, I, I think so. I think they don't recognize it as an abnormality. They, they feel that most people feel similarly, but they just don't under why, understand why it it's slows them up when other people seem to go about their daily lives. And um, for some people, and, and I'm thinking of individual people here that I've gotten to know really well, some people feel like they're having heart attacks. Other people, asthma exacerbations because it, it manifests as shortness of breath. One person felt like their arm wouldn't work, literally. I've, wow. I've seen people that had seizure-like activity because of anxiety. Um, somebody felt like they, they struggled actually wearing clothes because every fiber of the clothes, they could feel it, and it was just an unnatural feeling. Um, and not to mention chronic pain. There's a lot of chronic pain that you do the test and you say, this person's having more pain than they should based on what their MRI looks like. And frequently, there is a psychological component. Doesn't mean the pain's not real. Just means if we try and use opiates or other pain medicines, it's not going to help. And it may lead to more trouble. One of the things, uh, you know, as Andrew was putting together some prep for this show, is that there are certain people by temperament who are more likely to develop anxiety. And, you know, this is something I'd like to delve in more with Dr. Majors, but, you know, one of my areas of uh, great interest that I speak on are the, the human temperaments, which is the biological part of our personality. And this is actually used in mainstream psychiatry within something called the big five personality traits. And one of the two traits that's part of temperament, one of the five traits that's part of the big five, is actually called neuroticism. Yeah, that sounds negative, but it's it's not meant to be necessarily. But it's just your your how prone you are to have negative thoughts or to have anxiety. So those people who in you know the four classic temperaments are either cholerics or melancholics, you know, uh, as opposed to the more easygoing sanguines and phlegmatics are truly statistically more likely to develop anxiety disorders because of the way their brains are literally wired. Yeah, it's something that's inborn, it, not even genetic, so to speak. It, it's something that is inherent to you from birth. Yes, and and probably about half of it is genetic, and you know, a cluster of other things puts together the other half of that. Yeah, I was I was looking up a, apart from kind of the the genetic aspect and the personality aspect, things that make you more likely to get generalized anxiety. There's a few things we we see that women actually have it twice as often as men. Um, poverty can bring it on, recent life events that are negative, chronic physical or mental illness, uh, loss of a parent or separation from a parent, um, low support during childhood. So non-emotionally involved parents. Yeah. People, the, the, the kids, uh, latchkey children, so yes. to speak. And uh, the history of mental problems in parents. So, in other words, it appears that both nature and nurture can play a role in someone having uh, anxiety that interrupts their daily lives. And the the two courses of this throughout someone's life that we see commonly, one is it's a chronic fluctuating course where it's there all the time. There'll be flare-ups, but they always have baseline anxiety that's affecting how they live. Other people have episodic courses where there'll be a long period of time where they suffer from extreme anxiety and then times when they don't have it as much. And I think that can make it challenging for patients to identify this as a real permanent medical problem and not just a bad stretch they were having. I see that a lot too. Oh, I bet. And those are some of the questions we'll ask Dr. Majors. And one of the things that this can lead to, because being so anxious for so long a period of time can lead naturally to a reactive depression. A hundred percent. So it's not that the depression is there separately, it's that it's caused by the anxiety, although they can exist side by side. I, I think a lot of people may be confused as well, the differences between anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. So often people have both. So often we use similar medicines to treat them. Yes. Uh, a way that it was described to me that I, I liked a lot is that depression really focuses more on negative thoughts, self-critical thoughts about previous events and circumstances. And then anxiety, you tend to worry about future events and circumstances. But it's definitely a negative outlook in, in both regards. Yeah, so you cover the whole time span, past and future, with depression and anxiety, whereas anxiety, <laughs> the past is, I'm too worried about the future to think about the past. Correct, yeah. Uh, and an another disorder that is often overlaps and is often treated with similar medications 
as anxiety disorders is obsessive compulsive disorder, which is another type of question I have. But my current understanding is that obsessions are um, worries that you have that are not realistic. It's when you have, like you're worried about germs in the environment. That's, you know, the classic one. Whereas somebody, they may have anxiety about that, but the person with the anxiety disorder has something, anxiety out of proportion to something that's really going on in their life. Right. Someone with obsessive compulsive disorder might be worried that they just ran over a person with their car and forgot that they did it and they have to go back to check. That's not a realistic idea. And they know it's not that the idea doesn't make sense, but they have to go back and check on it anyway. They can't shake it. It's, it sticks with them. It sticks with them. So at the risk of having us mumble on about things at, on which we are not experts, I'm going to move on to the trivia question and then come back with our guest who will know far more than we do. Tom, our question, how, how do you come up with these trivia questions, by the way? How do I come up with them? Is this drawing from the well of, of Tom McGovern's knowledge, or how, where do you do you have a calendar with these? I'd love to subscribe. <laughs> I should ask one of my kids to get me a page. May, maybe calendar. we should get a doctor, doctor calendar. A doctor trivia question a day. Ooh, ooh, I like <laughs> the way you think. Um, wow, hmm, that's a great idea. Where do I come up with these? You know, I just kind of prepare for a show and then I just sit with it and say, all right, what would be some interesting fact for me to discover or or to share on the show? This one was actually particularly hard to come up with a trivia question about anxiety. And so some of you may think this was a, this was a weak effort, Tom, and so be it. I can accept that. I won't worry about the potential criticism. Yeah, don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. So the question is, the top four drugs prescribed to treat anxiety in the United States among the top 50 drugs are number 14, 20, 21, and 31. And then there are other types of anxiety drugs. But those four drugs all belong to the same class of drugs. And you may know because the, the name is out there in popular uh, media. What class do you think these four drugs belong to? And can you name at least one of them, either the generic name or the brand name? And hint, hint, you may hear the answer as we talk to Dr. Majors. But we'll be back after the break with our interview with Dr. Kevin Majors here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with our second segment of our show, which means our guest. And today's guest, Dr. Kevin Majors, was born and raised in Bloomington, Minnesota. He then attended college at the University of Dallas, stayed there for medical school and residency at the University of Texas Southwestern. After he did this, he did a fellowship in cognitive behavioral therapy and research in Philadelphia, and for the past decade has been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, where he teaches cognitive behavioral therapy to psychiatrists in training. Kevin Majors, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. Oh, and you know, let's start right off. You know, we're talking about anxiety. Now, is there a difference between, you know, our normal, common, everyday worries and anxiety, or is anxiety just worry on steroids, or is it something completely different? I think it's all basically the same. The thing with anxiety is no matter, it's a difference of severity, but there's no real difference of kind. So, and when people get a, their anxiety triggered, they respond in different ways. And one of the common ways people respond is by worrying about it. And why do we worry? People worry to neutralize the trigger and then to get rid of anxiety. So worry is a strategy that people discover at some point in their life to somehow get free of this, this trigger. Obsessions are the same kind. It's just trying to neutralize the trigger so that they can be free from anxiety. So anxiety and worry are different. Worry is a response to yeah, anxiety. Yeah, worry is a behavior. Yeah, it's a behavior done really to get rid of anxiety, to prevent future anxiety. Like, if only I could have peace on this, then my anxiety will not be triggered, will go away. Ah, very good. So we ourselves don't cause anxiety. No, anxiety is triggered. It might be triggered by our own thoughts. So that could be us causing it. It can be triggered by a memory. That's post-traumatic stress disorder. It could be triggered by social situations. It could be triggered by bodily sensations, like in panic disorder. So anxiety disorders are really specified by what triggers them. Or you could think of, like, what is it really a phobia of? Uh -huh. In some ways, when people, people who worry too much, they just have a phobia of certain thoughts, re reasonable thoughts, you know, as a rule. And, and, and is that different, then, from obsessive-compulsive disorder, where they're not reasonable yeah. thoughts? 
Exactly, and that's the difference. So OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is really a phobia of irrational thoughts. And and Dr. Majors, how could we, for our listeners, if somebody's listening to this and say, you know, I worry sometimes, how how can people, a layperson, identify the difference between one of these anxiety disorders and normal worrying? I think it's all normal. So I've treated, you know, my, I have a private practice also, and I treat all types of severity. When it comes to anxiety, it's all basically the same thing. People have something that triggers their anxiety, and they end up hating their anxiety. They're so unwilling to experience it, and then they're desperate to get rid of the trigger. So do some people have trouble because they try to run from the anxiety instead of facing it? Exactly. So you could say every anxiety disorder comes from viewing anxiety as a disorder. They okay. treat anxiety itself like it's something bad. And they just try, and unfortunately trying to get rid of anxiety is uh, missing the point of it. Because the real point is that when we have anxiety, really physiologically what's going on is we have adrenaline. Adrenaline that makes us smarter and better able to engage challenges. So if we, instead of being unwilling to have that, just said, great, bring it on, and then try to use the adrenaline we get well, then we end up rising to the challenge and growing through the challenge. So anxiety is really a sign that this is a challenge where we could grow, and what we really need to do is use that jolt we get, the adrenaline, to best engage the challenge. Wow. I have... That is such a fresh perspective. I love it. So that's yeah. a positive. It's totally, too. it's totally liberating, and it work. It's true for any level of anxiety. Any level, even all-encompassing yeah. anxiety that seems to attach itself to anything in someone's life. Yeah, because that's what happens. The more desperate people get to avoid anxiety, the more they try to flee from all challenges, and that just makes them feel overwhelmed by challenge. The moment people start really using the energy they have to engage the challenge, especially to actively challenge themselves, suddenly they don't feel overwhelmed by it. It becomes practical and doable. Wow. Well, before we get into, you know, treatment things, you know, one of the the things that I'm interested in, I give talks on, are the, you know, the four classic temperaments as, you know, being kind of the biological aspect of personality. And one of the, the two traits to make up the four classic temperaments is one of the five traits of the big five personality traits that are used in psychology and psychiatry, and that's called neuroticism. Can you explain what neuroticism is and how it may or may not be part of a propensity to anxiety? Yeah, so that's, it's part of a different tradition than cognitive behavioral therapy, right? but it's a kind of hypersensitivity to threats. So that the people are oversensitized to bad things coming or bad things happening. So it's really marked by a tendency to dread. I personally don't think that classifying and labeling reactions is really teaching people how to engage challenge. Right. So if you turn something into a permanent trait, like, oh, I just have this neuroticism, you know, which is like I tend to complain and dread, uh, well, then what opportunity for growth does that give us? It doesn't teach us anything useful for how to engage and thrive on the challenges that we face. And you know, the challenge that we're facing right now, the one that makes us most anxious, is precisely where we're going to grow the most. Well, that, so we, that sounds like yeah, you're looking at this it. teleologically, like there's a purpose, <laughs> which exactly. as Christians we believe, right? <laughs> yeah, and yeah, the key point, anxiety is not a disorder. Now, complaining and dreading is. <laughs> and I think that I think that complaining and dreading, those are the little micro habits of the mind that actually change our brain and produce what's called a negative processing bias, where now we start to see everything automatically in a negative way. So when we complain, we're shutting off what's called the appraisal center. You know, and that is when we when we face a challenge, and get enthused about it, our appraisal center lights up and sees it as an opportunity. But if we see a challenge and then start dreading it or complaining about it, our appraisal center turns down and that activates our fight or flight response, which is then, you know, what is part of what, you know, goes into feeling anxious. So, is, so are some people born with a greater tendency to anxiety or is it all learned behavior? It's all behavioral. 
but some people develop the negative processing bias more quickly. And so for every anxiety disorder and for depression and for anger problems, what happens is you get this negative bias in the thinking so that it's a physiological thing. If, if you show them a sad face and a happy face, they actually process the sad face faster. Oh. So it's a, and it's reversed by medicines. But more importantly, it's reversed by cognitive therapy, which is taking these things that you're dreading and then asking yourself, how could I grow the most in this? How could this actually be the right thing for me? And discovering it an opportunity, and then the phrasal center lights up. And you've done the work, and you've done it in a natural way that's behavioral. And so it's sustainable. Wow. You know, one, one of the things that I, I see a lot in folks, especially folks with a li- religious background, they, they perceive this as partially at least a soul problem in addition to a brain problem. Is that something that you would resonate and agree with, or do you think it's more biochemical? I think it's biobehavioral. So I think that behaviors do shape our physiology, and they produce changes in the brain, but those things can all be changed back. The brain is very malleable. And I do think that perfection of virtue would, in a sense, do everything to improve us. And so... But I don't hold that people are morally to blame if they're anxious. So it's a, it's a, it's a kind of sensitive topic. But, you know, because on the one hand, this is not something they're like choosing to do. And they would, oftentimes, when the patients I get, they're very desperate to find another way to do it, and they haven't figured it out. So I'm not going to blame them for that. And what I would just say is that many times when people are, are really worrying about something, you have to ask, are they, is there some kind of idol that they're so afraid of, of losing? It might be, you know, it might be even good things like, you know, the health of a family member or, you know, or their financial security or uh, their own health, but it can also be what people think of them. Uh, it can be the things like comfort. But, you know, when those, when those high priority, our highest priority items get threatened, you know, then, then anxiety comes. And so it can be a chance to see what would be my highest priority here, which is like asking really, what's the greatest good that could come from this? And that's really how could I make it into love? Wow. So how do, I, how do I lovingly, patiently, the virtue here is patience, accept the discomfort of the anxiety and then actually do the most loving thing? Man, and if, pe- if people followed that, they would they would get better. And obviously, and this is the, this is the way that yeah. all psychiatry programs train their trainees, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> well, the good news is a lot of this is where cognitive behavioral therapy is going. Thank God. And so, yeah, so the the, the kind that I like the most, I think, is the wisest, um, is called acceptance and commitment therapy. But the idea is you accept the pain patiently. And you lovingly commit to your highest ideals. Man, isn't that something? Commitment is not, uh, that's something that would be frowned upon in other other areas, or at least not held up as a yeah. virtue. You so, know, but I think in psychiatry ideals, people do still, in our culture, have good ideals. So uh, sometimes I've compared it to, it's the Asturias of the modern world. Meaning that, <laughs> the, the Northwest yeah. Spain. It's the one part that never got conquered. Exactly, man. And 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 thirteen Alfonso's still good. I'm sorry. (laughs) Go ahead. I got Tom getting real excited in studio here. Exactly. So if you ask a person, okay, imagine like here's a thought experiment. Um, Imagine that you're overhearing your spouse talking about you with a friend who's never met you, and your spouse can't doesn't know you're listening in, and you find out that she's saying what a wonderful husband you are and how well you treat her. And you ask people, what would you most, what words would you most like her to say in describing you? And they would say, being, you know, that I'm loving, I'm wise, you know, I'm understanding, I'm patient, you know, I am generous. Those are all ideals that are really virtues. And so these, these, these are still there and, and everyone has them. So a lot of it is developing a commitment towards self-improvement and pursuing those virtues or ideals that the patients yeah. themselves can identify. 
Exactly. Because the only thing we can control is our own behavior. We can't control the thoughts that occur, and you can't control the feelings you have. But you can control what you do, and that will win eventually. You have to be patient with the process. But if you're patient with the emotions that come, the behavior will win. Okay, let me lay out a clinical scenario because it's one that I lived intensely about 35 years ago with anxiety. And I remember waking up, and my anxiety was so bad that I would wake up, I would have three to four seconds of peace, and then all of a sudden it was like be this inrush of this anxiety that would hang with me. It wasn't even like a cloud. It was like within me, not above me, all day until I could force myself to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. How does that fit in with anxiety? So there's a couple things there. So one is that there's a habit that was going on of, of worrying, so of dwelling on the threats. Yes. So, and the more you dwell on the threat, and like you're trying to push it away, the more it comes back. And oftentimes there was no specific threat. That's yeah. the thing that became, you know, it would start with threats, but then it would become all-encompassing. Does that happen yeah. to some people? Think and it, and so it might much? be that the threat is actually the anxiety itself. Ah. So, once it, so once it got triggered, the anxiety itself becomes the problem that you focus on. You worry about anxiety. Yeah, and which is where all anxiety disorders end up. So one thing is, if, if, if I'd been there then, it would be to see, one, what things are taking place the very second your alarm goes off. If you're spending any time in bed, there's something called the cognitive distortion of sleep, where if you stay in bed and look at your coming day, everything seems heavy. And there, it gets into a whole other big topic of sleep and the negative bias we have during REM dreams. Uh, which yes. is a, a theory that to say, why does increased amounts of REM from increased sleep hours lead to increased depression? But in a way, REM is where, that's where you have nightmares. It's where you yes. have challenging dreams. Yes. And it's where the brain is rehearsing threats. So whatever the case may, of what that theory may be, uh, that when we first wake up, if we stay in bed and think of the coming day, it feels heavy. And sometimes I tell people, if you want to know what depression's like, that's what it's like. It's what that, what the day looks like at that very first moment. Or anxiety, I could say. Anxiety and depression are really just about the same thing. I, I'll, I can talk about that too. But the, so one key is getting out of bed, jumping out the moment the alarm sounds, so that the day doesn't get avoided for a moment. Because in the moment we start avoiding something, our amygdala labels it a threat. Oh. And then it gets harder to face it. The amygdala, the okay, wait, it. wait, you just brought up a big word. I love this word, but many of our audience doesn't know it. Who or what is the amygdala? <laughs> yeah, so, so the amygdala is the part of our brain that automatically detects threats. Ah. So it's always scanning everything we're sensing and thinking and remembering and feeling. You know, it scans all experience. Uh, and is looking for things with a threat label. And if it sees a threat, it does three things. So it detects the threat, then it sounds the alarm, and then it watches our response, looking for signs of approach or avoidance. Okay. If we approach the supposed threat, that will feedback and temporarily increase our anxiety, but then it retrains the amygdala in a process called habituation or safety learning, that this is actually not a threat. But so, if we avoid the supposed threat, that feeds back and actually increases the threat label for next time. So our amygdala sounds even stronger the next time. So would this approach be part of acceptance and commitment therapy? Yes. So the patient's part is patiently feeling the alarm sounding. And the commitment is approaching the trigger even while the alarm sounds. See, the big discovery people need to make is that the moment you have control in a sense or where I should say where you can gain mastery of anxiety, is only when you're anxious. You can't do it beforehand because you can't reason yes. with your amygdala. It doesn't have language. So th- that explains so, why so many different treatments that are offered in counseling don't work unless they can work in the moment. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. It has to be in the moment. So and you-, you can only retrain, just like with addictions, it's only when you have a craving or a temptation that you actually are growing. Wow. So that, I guess this, this brings a couple thoughts or questions into my mind. 
Because Andrew's family practice, he treats a lot of patients who come to him with anxiety. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's. I think one of the things that I see a lot, the struggle, is people are looking for kind of the easy way out. And sometimes pharmaceuticals that people envision some pill helping them, and, and while it can, I think there's the, the commitment is the thing that so many people need that they shrug off. So I, a couple of questions I, I have, you know, you had mentioned sleep. Do you see many people overcome anxiety and depression who persist in poor sleep routines, even, even though mm-hmm. they could change them, they choose not to? Mm-hmm. So it's a secret in psychiatry that if you want to help people get better, you get them sleeping better <laughs> and, you, and you get them exercising. So I try to make sure all of my patients sleep seven to eight hours, not more than eight. Oversleeping is probably worse emotionally than undersleeping. But seven to eight hours of sleep and, you know, very regular exercise. So I think that sleep problems are often anxiety-related. For instance, insomnia you could describe as really an anxiety disorder, and it's a phobia of insomnia. (laughs) <laughs> Man. So it self-triggers. Yes. And so the more, the more a person can just be patient with insomnia, with staying in bed awake while committing to, you know, to live their life as fully as they can in the daytime, the faster it goes away. Man. But it's really mostly patience that you just, you have to accept that sometimes you won't sleep well and don't catastrophize it and don't turn insomnia itself into something you're dreading and fearing that will wake you up as you approach bed. Well, Kevin, I want to take a quick break here. We're focusing on a lot of the things. I think we're hinting at the cognitive behavioral therapy that you practice so well. We're going to be right back after this brief break. And we're back at Dr. Doctor with Dr. Kevin Majors, and we are discussing anxiety today. Kevin, one of the things I talk to folks a lot about are lifestyle changes. You had mentioned sleep and exercise counseling and the various sorts of therapies, and then pharmaceuticals. How, how do you encourage patients to, to attack anxiety? A mixture of all three, one before the others? How do you look at that? Yes, yeah, it's a great question. The, the number one thing is actually exercise. Okay. So what the, kind and how much? That's the hardest um, one. <laughs> the, 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 for, for another way, for a healthy person, it's enough that they run for 10 minutes with three 30-second sprints. If they can't sprint, then they should run for 25 minutes at a pace where they couldn't talk comfortably. And to try to do that every other day. Oh, okay. If you, can, if you can talk comfortably, then it's more like 45 to 60 minutes of running, like a jog where you can jog with a friend and talk. That takes a lot longer. And but what the does high this intensity do? is especially, so one, a, a number of things, the one big one uh, is the effect on uh, neurons and how... Okay, you either have this image of what a neuron should look like. <laughs> a neuron cell, should look, yes. Yeah, a neuron should look like a tree in the winter without any leaves. <laughs> with many little branches and a million twigs. Yes. And chronic stress, you say this, uh, the bad kind of stress, which is stress you're unwilling to have, where you're not saying, great, bring it on, but you're resisting it and, <laughs> and complaining and dreading, that high cortisol stress shears off the twigs. Ah. Your neurons become stubbier, so they lose what we call arborization. And the thing is, at the base of the tree, there's a dial. And that dial is in large part controlled by a hormone that exercise puts out. And when you exercise, that dial is put all the way up again to the highest, you know, to the, it's moved all the way up, and the trees sprout a million twigs in an hour or two. Wow. So you, so you get this rapid arborization. Now, at least that's, been, that's in mice. We have evidence that this is also what happens in humans. But you do get a clearing of the way people think after exercising. And so the effect is called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, is very fast, and it lasts for about 48 hours. That's and then they start to lose it again, so every other day. And so, for instance, test-taking abilities are radically improved for about two days after intense exercise. Uh-huh. I know for myself, the speed of writing, I write twice as fast after exercising and reading twice as fast. So the, the mental processes are all made faster by exercise. 
But then our heart pumps out another peptide, it's called AND, atrial natriuretic peptide, that turns off all the other elements of the stress reaction. Uh, so those things that were causing that dial to go down are also removed. So it's a double benefit for the arborization of neurons. What if someone's not a runner? What else could they do besides running? Uh, so you can use a bike. So and and you can you can do high intensity intervals on a bike, and it's basically the same idea. You on a spin bike, it's easier to rapidly change resistance, and if you can do elliptical, so rowing. So there there are a number of exercises that so aerobic that, that can work every other day. Sit close enough. Yes, they can yeah, have my kids in church. Book on this. <laughs> I get I get basically all of my patients to exercise, and if it's hard, I have them read this book called Spark by John Rady, who's another Harvard professor, and it's fantastic on talking about the effect of exercise on the brain. It's super motivating. How do you spell his last name? R A T E Y. Yeah, something about the revolutionary science of exercise in the brain or something like that. Oh, yeah. Pearls of wisdom are dropping like dew on a cool <laughs> spring morning from <laughs> Kevin's mouth today. This is just delightful very, for our listeners. Okay, so you're, this, you're an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy. What is that? So it's getting people essentially to do three things. To reframe challenges as opportunities to open up fully to the present moment and hold their attention in the present moment, and then to engage challenge. So it's really, it's cognitive, emotional, behavioral. So the cognitive part is thought, the, you know, then you have the affective part of emotion, which is being in the present moment, and then you have the behavioral part, which is the will. It actually tracks perfectly with how Aquinas thinks of dividing the soul and how Augustine divides the soul. So, but you have, and that's what initially attracted me to CBT because I was thinking, well, thoughts and, you know, intellect and will yes. are kind of very basic, you know, and that's what you're dealing with. Uh, so, the, uh, but we do interesting things with how you address thoughts. And this is the, the kind of the tricky thing to get, which is the concept of reframing. But all cognitive therapy, I think, essentially comes down to one skill, which is reframing. Oh. So in my example of reframing is, so imagine you're on a mountain that is going to take years to climb. It's like, you know, a range that goes on and on. Okay, and you're not in good shape. Uh, think now of your attitude towards soreness. <laughs> if you hate and dread muscle soreness, what would that do to your ascent of the mountain? <laughs> Frame it right? away from desire. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But what if you could understand that the soreness is actually your muscles growing? That is the game. That you only feel sore when your muscles are growing. And it's finite. It's a finite process. And you, you, then you could actually say to the soreness, bring it on. Mm -hmm. The more, the better. And then you would go at that mountain and really kind of attack it, trying to maximize the soreness. <laughs> you would rapidly be unable to get sore. And you'd be looking for more challenging climbs to get your fingers sore and your elbows and arms and sore. You'd be thinking, I need to work out my whole body on this mountain. That's what it looks like to have a growth mindset, to really tackle challenge knowing you will grow through it. And that's what reframing does. That's what reframing soreness. So now you see it as an opportunity to grow rather than simply a threat to comfort. Got it. So it's very powerful. How so reframing does it work with anxiety, anxiety then? Anxiety is actually adrenaline. Adrenaline allows us to engage and thrive on challenge. So say you're going to be giving a, 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 large, a talk to a large audience. Well, what will adrenaline do for you? Adrenaline is like a superpower. It allows <laughs> you to connect empathically with many more people than you normally could. So you can feel and read the entire audience. It allows you to project your voice. It makes everything easy to remember what you want to say. It makes your voice more rich and interesting. It, it probably makes us more attractive. So a, a, adrenaline raises our IQ. It does everything. It's, it's the super drug that every other drug wants to be. Because it, <laughs> yes. And, and we have it when we have anxiety. So all we have to do is reframe the anxiety as adrenaline and say, this is awesome. Bring it on. 
Okay, so, so let me ask a question. Like, yeah. When you mm-hmm. have, in, sometimes if I have intense anxiety, well, I guess adrenaline does this, I feel like I have almost tunnel vision. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. So tunnel vision can mean different things for different people. I usually think of it as a kind of state of being more automated. Okay. Um, where your attention is actually captured by some object. And so your field of vision constricts around that object. Could and be t- pre-syncope uh, as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, but is it ever associated with adrenaline, I guess is the fundamental question. Yeah, so, so I think adrenaline is actually more associated with a state called flow. Ah. And so, and <laughs> so adrenaline, like, so flow is actually a high adrenaline state that's positive. And yes. anxiety is a high adrenaline state that's negative. And ah. just by reframing anxiety into adrenaline, you can flip from anxiety into flow. Wow. Yes, yeah. I've, I've, I've read a ton on flow and use it in some of my talks. So this is, this is amazing. I've never heard anybody else say flow is the flip side of anxiety. Is that, is yeah. that something, Kevin, that's in our power to change? At will, if somebody really intends to do that and consciously tries to reframe, is that something that almost I, everybody can do? The answer is theoretically yes. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. it probably takes practice and someone knowing that it can that it can happen. And that's where but CBT you, comes yeah. into play. Yeah, yeah, which is essentially. But if if someone could make a leap and say they're like, you know, if someone were afraid of, let's say. Um, meeting new people at a party. And they would say, you know what, I'm just going to experience this anxiety. It's really adrenaline that's going to help me connect to more people more quickly. I'm just going to go into this party and try to really use the adrenaline to connect. So I need more of it, actually. So bring it on. It could very quickly happen. That person goes into the party and only experiences the connection, not the bad anxiety. And they would find that the time flew by and they were actually in flow the whole time. And now the party's over, and two hours have gone by, and like, whoa, that was wonderful. But they weren't in tunnel vision. They weren't rushed. It was just time was flying by because they were so in the moment, you know, just dealing with each person they were talking to one-on-one. You know, and even more so if they thought, I'm going to use my adrenaline to try to be as encouraging to each person I talk to as possible. And then they try to really be practicing encouraging the other person. So they're shifting all their focus on doing something good, loving in the world, and then they're in flow. Whereas if their focus had stayed in their own head, in their own thoughts, you know, trapped there, then they would have just been worrying and anxious. So if our listeners want to learn more about these skills, uh, short of seeing somebody like you, uh, are there any websites or, or books you'd recommend? So I think that one, one book that deals with flipping anxiety and what it means in a, in a very good way is called The Upside of Stress by Kelly McGonigal at Stanford. Oh, I'm reading her book right now on uh, willpower. Yeah, I, per, I even like, I like The Upside of Stress even more. Good to know. I think the, yeah, the, and there's, there's very good kernels in that. Another book that is older, but I like a lot, is called The Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Anxiety by Eifert and Foresight. Wow. And it's a workbook. And it has very good audio files online. I think you can even get them without buying the book. So if your listeners want to do that, The Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Anxiety by Eifert and Foresight. Eifert? That's an, that's, yeah, that's Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Anxiety. Oh, this is great. And, and you have a website that deals with uh, what I was going through, Anxiety in Medical School. Yeah. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, so I have a website called OptimalWork.com, uh, which is essentially teaching people the art of reframing, recollecting their attention, and challenging themselves in each hour of work. I think that it work, that if we can properly approach the next hour of work we're going to do, seeing it as an opportunity, silencing our mind before we start, and then really setting a good challenge in it to bring our highest ideals into that work. We go into flow at will and are practicing all of cognitive behavioral therapy at once. So, so can, work actually becomes therapy. Oh, and, and nobody has a shortage of opportunity for that. 
Exactly. And so if we just learn to use the opportunity of each hour of work, it, one week can be totally transformative. And so this website is called OptimalWork.com. Now, with what you just said, does this mean that any activity can induce flow in any person? Yep, provided that you are uh, welcoming the challenge and trying to actively stretch yourself in it. It's the stretching towards something higher that produces flow. Right, because you're right at the limit of your skills yep. in the particular challenge. Okay. Exactly. Wow. This is just wild. Why, why, why didn't I know this 30 years ago? <laughs> but thank you for telling us now. Uh, You're welcome. <laughs> so I'm curious, in you know, the, the secular environment that is Harvard Medical School, how is this received by your, your students, the residents? Oh, they're completely on board with it. Uh, because, you know, in many ways, what, the, you know, what Harvard values, you know, is excellence in work, which I'm all about anyway, and also yes. work is all about, and it values seeing your work with the spirit of service, and it values being at the forefront of innovation in the development of your field. Beautiful. And I agree with all of those things. And so I have way more in common with my colleagues at Harvard than any kind of difference, which is not, I don't really focus on the difference. That's beautiful. So we have a little under two minutes left. I know one area you love to talk about, maybe this will, um, you know, whet people's appetites for a future show is the concept of mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah, I think that mindfulness can be a kind of revolution in people's lives if they really understand it well. Uh, and so... I uh, like to, when I'm teaching people mindfulness, it blows their mind. I have them wear a heart rate monitor so that they can see that when they are practicing mindfulness and just getting their attention anchored in the present moment, the very way their heart beats starts to change. So they, when you activate parasympathetics, your heart rate slows as you exhale and rises again as you inhale right. and turns into a sine wave. And just to see the physiologic effect of recollecting your attention in silence, it's so powerful and motivating. So to see that mindfulness is something physical where we're essentially silencing the constant doing mode in our head, which is really left brain, and we're using our right brain, we're just anchoring ourselves in the present moment. And we're anchoring ourselves in being, what is. And so, if I were to say, say more, it would be the greater the being we're tuning into, the greater the silence that results in our mind. And Kevin, this yeah. is great. I think this is a setup for another show. Yeah, I'd like to like to hear more yeah, about that. So, I'd be happy to happy to talk about Kevin more. Majors, Harvard University, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you for being with us on Doctor Doctor today. You've given our listeners a wealth of information. God bless yeah, you. Well, yeah, thank you, John. Thank you. And we're back with Dr. Doctor. Today, we have our answer to the medical trivia question regarding anxiety. And you may have heard the answer given by Dr. Majors unknowingly because he doesn't know what we're talking about right now. So the top four drugs prescribed to treat anxiety in the United States are number 14, 20, 21, and 31. Most prescribed drugs in the country, and they are all in the same class of drugs. What is that class of drugs, and can you name at least one of them? I I got this one. This I'm is, sure you did. This these are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Otherwise, they're called SSRIs, and you may have seen that title. Do you ever prescribe these, Andrew? Daily. You know, this <laughs> is this is something that is it's so common and so useful. Not not that the drugs are the the only thing, as Dr. Majors talked about. There's a lot of ways to treat anxiety. However, they play a critical role for so many people. One of the things I was wondering, Tom, is if, if you scored this ranking like a cross-country meet, where would the SSRIs end up? Would they, would they win? No, I think there are the, some cardiac drugs. They're probably going to be on the podium, drugs. right? They'll be on the podium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like the way you think. So anyway, these drugs, you know, did you name one of these? Uh, and actually, drug number 57 is also on there, but there were some other anti-anxiety drugs between number 31 and 57. So 14... Uh, brand name Zoloft, sertraline is the generic name. 
Number 20 was Prozac, which is probably the most common brand name that's out there. And then Fluoxetine is its generic. Number 21, right behind it, is Citalopram, the generic name for Celexa. 31 is S-Citalopram for Lexapro. And 57 is Peroxetine, rhymes with Fluoxetine. Um, Peroxetine is Paxil. So these drugs are prescribed a lot. Yeah, these are very popular drugs. They all are, are very similar in their mechanism of action. However, they do have different, uh, I think of them like flavors of ice cream, which they different ones may be better for different people, but they are, as a family, very useful in so many ways. Oh, yeah. Different, different patients will have different reactions to them. Some of them won't even notice they're taking them. Other ones might have, you know, consistent similar side effects that only go away when you stop the medicine. Mm-hmm. So, listeners, we are so thankful for you being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, and we come to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and we air on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen to past episodes on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing with Kristen Hawkins how members of Students for Life of America successfully engage in students on campus across the country about abortion. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.